Let's pray. Dear Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. For Christ's sake, amen. I think freedom is better than what many people think. Uh, The modern view of freedom is like the old Greek saying, the free man is one who lives as he chooses. A lot of people think that way. I am free when I live as I choose. Well, freedom is better than that. Uh, Freedom has absolutes, boundaries, and restrictions, and that's good. And I think most people believe that, but don't want to apply it to their personal lives. A few illustrations may help here. Are trains free when they run smoothly on the tracks or when they break boundaries and derail? Well, tracks are absolutes, boundaries and restrictions, but they help trains and passengers get to the destination with ease and comfort. And this is obvious, but many people still don't want to apply this same thinking to their personal lives. What about sports? What if sports had no boundaries or rules? Well, they would be absurd. No one would have any fun. Who wants to watch complete confusion out there? Clearly defined boundaries and rules make catching a touchdown or hitting a home run or scoring a goal meaningful and exciting. And this makes sense, and yet people don't want to apply it to their morality. Take music, notes, chords, rhythm, structure. Are they oppressive boundaries to be broken? Now, even when a rock guitarist goes off on some sick solo or some jazz pianist hits their improv, it is within the structure of the song. If musicians break the boundaries of notes, chords, and rhythm entirely and just irrationally hit whatever random notes they please at whatever haphazard rhythm they please, music loses its meaning and its beauty and is reduced to noise. But people don't want to apply the same logic to their sexuality, their taxes, their parenting, their finances. Freedom is not living however you choose. That kind of bogus freedom ends in absurdity. True freedom is to flourish within the margins of absolute truth. It makes sense for trains, sports, and music, and it also makes sense for life. We need to realize that when we color outside of the lines of God's truth, we are not free and we'll end up painting an ugly picture with our lives outside the lines which God put there for our beauty and good. So here's a more rational view of freedom, one supported by Scripture and our experience. Christ set us free not to indulge our flesh, but to serve one another through love. Christ set us free, but not to indulge our flesh, but to serve one another through love. When I was younger, I would sometimes think, God forgives me, so if I go ahead and do this sin, I can always ask for forgiveness. Here we go. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. I was, I was trying to justify my enjoyment of sin while also clinging to God's forgiveness. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever used your freedom in Christ as an excuse to sin? That's bondage. Freedom in Christ and bondage to sin, they don't go together. 
Freedom is liberty from the dominion and the power of sin and its motivation unto holiness. Well, let's see what Paul says about freedom. When we come to Galatians 5.13, we come to a shift in Paul's focus. He spent ample time defending the doctrine, the glorious doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now he's shifting into how to live by the Spirit because of justification. Galatians 5.13 through Galatians 6.10 has been called the ethical section of Galatians. Paul explains how to obey the truth of the gospel, how to use our Christian freedom. And Paul recognizes the ongoing power and pull of our sinful desires and how those sinful desires affect our relationship with God and others. The flesh works to destroy relationships. It was happening in Galatia and hurting the unity and fellowship of the churches. Paul was telling them how to heal. So let's dig into these three profound verses. First point, brothers and sisters, God called you to freedom. God called you to freedom. Paul says in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Now the word for is significant. It connects back to verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves for or because you were called to freedom, brothers. Paul made that castration comment because the Judaizers were pulling the Galatians away from freedom in Christ and back into the throes of slavery. Not cool in any way you look at that. And Paul was like, no, 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 no. God called you to freedom, freedom, not slavery. So act like it. That's, that's what he was saying. And like David, Paul was striking the lion on the head to rescue the lamb from its mouth because the good shepherd wants the lamb to live and to run free. When Paul says you were called to freedom, I think he means that God graciously and effectually brought them to himself with irresistible grace. Romans 8.30 states it like this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every single person that God effectually calls reaches heaven. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains effectual calling as the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. God hadn't made their freedom a possibility. God made their freedom a reality. God's effectual call is not, oh, please come to me. No, that's God's universal call in the gospel, the general call. God's effectual call is different. It is God bringing us to freedom by his spirit. Paul said with confidence, for freedom Christ has set you free. You really are free. Free. Now, I preach about sin and guilt. Why? Well, lots of good biblical reasons. Uh, this is not one of the reasons. I don't preach about sin and guilt to suggest to you, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are still enslaved to sin. 
and unable to overcome the flesh. That's not the reason. Sin is not your master, and you don't have to do what it says. Christ is your master. Therefore, you are free to do what your master says. Now, unbelievers, they need to hear that they are still enslaved to their sin, but not God's children. You are not enslaved to sin anymore, dear children of God. God called you to freedom in Christ so that the dominion and the power of sin is broken in your lives and you are free, free to live as a child of God, free to make progress in love for God and others. Saints, when hearing the law and hearing about your depravity, sin, and guilt, let it all drive you to Christ. And, and a life of unceasing repentance and faith. But do not wrongly assume or even feel inside like you are still enslaved to sin. You're not enslaved anymore. You are free to obey God. And the Spirit grows those desires for obedience in you. Our focus as children of God must be twofold. Our ongoing struggle with the flesh... We have to be aware. We have to struggle with that. And then our living out our freedom in Christ, living out our true identity in Christ. As God's law continues to expose sin in your life and drive you to Christ, the gospel reminds you of who you truly are in Christ and how you are to obey God by His Spirit. We must not ignore or diminish the ongoing struggle with the flesh, and yet at the same time, we must not forget our freedom and that God's Spirit is in us, empowering us to overcome sin. In other words, we're not fighting a losing battle. We're not fighting a losing battle, but a battle that has already been won by Christ. Live out your victory as you pursue righteousness. The gospel guarantees and the gospel secures our ongoing growth. And our ongoing Christian maturity, it, it guarantees it, it secures it. Yes, we continue to struggle with sin, struggle with the flesh in this life. But unbelief says, I can't do it. I'll never make any progress. I'm too weak to win or even to try. Well, that's unbelief. That's abusing grace. The gospel promises progress, Unbelief also says this, I might as well just do it because, hey, I'm forgiven either way. It doesn't matter. Just do it. I'm in grace. That's unbelief too. That's abusing grace. The gospel is not your license to sin, but your freedom not to sin. Were you called to freedom? Did Christ not set you free to live free? Now, we must know what Christ saved us from, but we will not maximize our freedom until we know what Christ has saved us to. What Christ has saved us to? Freedom, freedom, freedom. Yes, Christ saved us from sin and guilt. Don't ever forget it. Keep that in your mind. But Christ also saved us to freedom and a life of obedience to our Father who loves us. So, so when you lust again, and when you envy your neighbor's truck again, or yell at your kids again, 
or grumble about your circumstances again. The way to think is, is not, well, I'll never be any different. I'm just stuck in this rut, and I'm going to be stuck here the rest of my life. I'll always be stuck. That's not thinking free. That's thinking like a slave. Free people think like this, Father, I've failed you again, but you have called me to freedom. Christ has set me free from this besetting sin. My flesh fails, but I am free. I belong to Christ, my master, and Father, I need your help. Forgive me, Father, and empower me with your spirit to win. I trust that you will help me win as the spirit leads me. I will win. That's how free people think. Second, brothers and sisters, do not misuse your freedom. Paul continues in verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now here, flesh means your corrupt human nature, your sinfulness, that urge deep down inside of you to sin. That's, that's your flesh. Timothy George calls it our fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing, the arena of indulgence and self-assertion. That's your flesh. God called you to freedom, brothers and sisters, but not to pour gas on the fire of your flesh. Freedom does not entitle you to indulge the desires of your corrupt human nature. That would be only to return to slavery. Paul argued aggressively against legalism, but in verse 13, he argues aggressively against antinomianism or libertinism. God's grace in Christ is not your license to sin, it's your license to kill sin. You have that? It's not your license to sin. It's your license to kill sin. This is why Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. He says in Romans 8, 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The lie of antinomianism or libertinism, the lie being promoted by people like Nadia Bowles-Weber and her fans is toxic. It's not new. It's, it's rehashed old heresy that's been around for a long time. Antinomianism doesn't give life or anything good. It lies and it urges people to use their freedom to indulge the flesh, which is slavery and death. Paul outright condemns the very philosophy that makes Nadia Bowles a New York Times bestseller. People love her contaminated gospel because it champions grace and forgiveness while giving license to sin. That's no gospel. That's straight from hell. Antinomianism or libertinism is a fallacy or a misconception of grace because Christ set us free not to pursue that which once enslaved us, but to pursue that which pleases our Father that we love, freedom, freedom. Imagine a dog running around in the front yard of its owner, and he's contained by one of those invisible fences. Uh, and he learned the boundaries, by the way, a couple shocks, taught him where that, where that is. And then the owner turns off the invisible fence and comes out of the house with a leash and calls for the dog to come. Here, boy, here, come, come, boy. Um, 
And so they're going to hit the trails. They're going to hit the trails of a local park, beautiful park. They're going to do that together. At this point, the antinomian or the libertine wants the dog to see the leash and to bolt for it, to run, to run, run, run in wide open spaces by himself, run free dog, run free. But that's bad for the dog for a lot of reasons. A truck might be coming on the road or whatever. No, the best option is for the dog to run to the master who loves it and to have the master put on the leash to avoid danger and to be close to the master and to go with the master to explore and to enjoy running in the beautiful park. Freedom for the dog is not running away from the master to avoid the master's leash, only to get separated and lost from the master. No true freedom is being alongside the master, close to the master, on the master's leash, which is in the master's hand, because the master knows the pleasures of the park and knows all the best places to take the dog. Good dogs run to their master's to run happily by their side, and the master's leash is never threatening to them. It's, it's an invitation. It's the opportunity for a great sunny afternoon in the park with the master. I had a collie named Hummer. I named it. But uh, when I played with him, Hummer, he would run towards me and at the last moment dodge me. And I like, couldn't ever really play with Hummer. It, it wasn't that much fun. I would have preferred for Hummer to run at me into my arms so I could play with Hummer. Hummer had other plans. Free people run to the master to do what the master says. Romans 6.18 teaches that our freedom in Christ makes us, oh yeah, slaves of righteousness. Freedom is being a slave to righteousness. Dr. Todd Wilson said, I think humorously, when the flesh takes over within the life of a church, that community can quickly become a chapter out of the Lord of the Flies. That's true. That's true. Next, brothers and sisters, use your freedom to serve one another through love. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Back in verse 6, Paul said, faith working through love. Now he says, through love, serve one another. So our faith in Christ is expressed and therein authenticated when we serve one another through love. Think of it like this. Our faith in Christ unites us to Christ. We are one with Christ. Since he is love, he puts his love into us and helps us by his spirit to love others. So as we trust and as we depend on Christ, he helps us from within to love one another by serving one another. Self-love urges you to misuse your freedom to indulge the desires of your flesh. True love urges you to use your freedom as an opportunity to lovingly serve others. Freedom is an others orientation, not a self-orientation, and this was a huge problem in the Galatian churches. I find the, the verb that Paul uses quite thought-provoking. He uses the Greek word douluo, which is to serve as a slave. 
serve as a slave. Now that we're free in Christ, God wants us to become slaves who lovingly set out to serve one another with slave-like devotion. After all, what is our new identity? Slaves of righteousness. Do you feel bound, enslaved, to figure out ways to express your love of God through serving each other? Are you constantly trying to figure out ways to serve the church, serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's wonderful to see Christians sacrifice um, deeply for one another. I've seen it. I love it. It's so precious to watch happen, and, and it's powerful. And I've also seen churchgoers trying to find ways out of things, as if it was a chore to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I've seen in some professing Christians a mentality like, hey, I'm a Christian and I don't need to, as if they're trying to get away from something in order to do what they really want to do. To borrow from the black-eyed peas, if one of you is interested in them, they said, where is the love, right? Where is the love? We are free not to avoid one another, but to get closer to one another, to invest our lives into one another, to be there for one another, to help one another. And not just raking leaves, not just uh, making meals, but sitting down and talking about our struggles, our heartaches, our victories, our growth, and to pray for one another. When Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I believe that he assumes that we must love God first. The, the greatest commandment is clearly to love God, but I think Paul assumes that truth for a moment because love for neighbor overflows from love for God. The last six commandments depend on the first four. You can't love others until you love God. So I think the first four commandments about loving God are implied in Paul's summary of the entire law here. Paul now focuses on how to love one another because we are loved by God and because we love God. Dr. Timothy George writes this, why did Paul call the selfless love of neighbor the fulfilling of the whole law? Not because it is superior to the worship and adoration of God, but rather because it is the proof of it. It is the proof of it. Please don't miss that. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ through sacrificial service is how you show you love God. That's really challenging. Paul's kind of saying, put your money where your mouth is. In other words, Galatians, stop loving yourselves so much and start loving each other as a way to show that you love God, that you really actually love God. Now, Apply that to your life. You may think that you have a wonderful, intimate, deep relationship with God, but unless you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ well, you don't love God as much as you think. Verse 14 is, is not Paul saying that our love is our righteousness, as if we could completely fulfill the law by loving. Remember, Jesus is our perfect righteousness and love he loved God. He loved his neighbor perfectly and fulfilled the law. We didn't. We don't. But Paul is calling the Galatians and us to this. Demonstrate that Christ has actually set you free 
by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ through love that the Spirit puts in you. Don't get circumcised to show that you are free. Your baptism signifies and seals your freedom in Christ anyway. No need to obey all those old covenant ceremonial laws. No, instead, listen to God and obey Him by serving each other through love. That's how you show that you love God. That's how you show that you're a true disciple. A lot of people are consumer Christians. They go to church thinking very, very little about how to love and serve others in the church through, through love. And, and then they focus primarily on who is and who, who is not loving them. These people have a slave mentality. But many others, they, they get it. By the Spirit, by grace, they get it. And they live their lives, they invest their lives in sacrificial service to their brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a small group of people here at Jerusalem Church who get up early on Sunday mornings and go to church before others get here to provide babysitting uh, for the praise team, some people in the praise team, so that some singers and musicians can participate. That's just, that's just a few people using their freedom in Christ to serve through love. I'm not sure any of us know the full extent of what Marsha Eisenhuth does for our church. Amazing. She's not here this morning, so I can say this, and she won't, she won't, she might get mad at me later, but uh, I don't know that we comprehend all that that woman does. She does a lot, folks, and she, she's, she, what is she doing with that? She's using her freedom above and beyond her paycheck to serve you through love. Many of you are praying for each other through some very difficult circumstances. Do you know what that is? A serving one another through love. You're using your freedom for the, for the right things. Have you ever missed a Sunday but wanted to hear the sermon and to catch up so you don't feel out of the loop? Well, you are being loved and served by a team of sound techs who makes sure that the sermons are recorded and you're being served by Tanya Saylor, who not only cuts it down but uploads the audio and she goes even further. She creates creative graphics uh, for the audio, serving one another through love. I know that some of you share meals in your homes with one another and during that time you encourage one another in the Lord. Large amounts of money have been exchanged in this church and given to each other encouraging words at just the right time through, through maybe a card or a letter or an email or a note. Do you know what all that is? Freedom in Christ being expressed in serving one another through love. You don't need a program to do that. You just don't. You just need to be spirit-filled. and He'll bring stuff to love each other. We don't need to spoon-feed you. You have the Spirit. Now go to work. Love each other. Serve one another. Do the needs. Care a little bit to ask. You just need to be free. You just need the Spirit. You just need to love God. You need the love of God in you. And then you'll find ways. It'll be natural for you to serve one another through love. It's so easy to say, I love God. Great. That's great. But do you? Do you? We're going to tell by how you serve and love one another. That's how we'll tell if you actually are real about this. It's so easy to say it. It's an entirely different thing to prove it, to show it by how you love one another. 
1 John 3, 17 and 18, don't take this lightly, dear children of God, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the assumption of that is it doesn't. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in deed and truth. The truth tells us how the deed is to look. If someone says, I love God, but consistently mistreats and harms their brothers and sisters in Christ with no change, no progress, no sanctification, their love of God is completely suspicious. We should ask that question, I'm not sure you love God. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Your love for the church verifies that you actually love God. Not your words, your words and your deeds. Jesus poured himself into his disciples. He loved them. He spent time with them. He fed them. He taught them. He equipped them. He encouraged them. He rebuked them. He challenged them. He prayed for them. He served them. Folks, he died for them. Christ died. He gave his life to serve and to love And your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ, tells you, dear brothers and sisters, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ set you free to love the church. To serve one another through love is not your means of justification. It is the fruit of your justification. The inevitable fruit, it will be there. You know, some may hear the little phrase, as yourself, and argue that we must first love ourselves before we can rightly love others, and so verse 14 becomes some sort of a rally cry to love yourself. That's not Paul's point. It's not Jesus' point. It's not the Bible's point. Our self-love is the problem. It's the problem. I recently read a blog post where the author was writing about loving themselves more. The post boasted in love of self, but oddly, self-love is carnal love. Fleshly love is the very thing that obstructs our love of God and others. Calvin said it quite eloquently, but we shall never love our neighbors with sincerity according to our Lord's intention till we have corrected the love of ourselves. The two affections are opposite and contradictory, for the love of ourselves leads us to neglect and despise others, produces cruelty, covetousness, violence, deceit, and all kindred vices, drives us to impatience, and arms us with the desire of revenge. Our Lord, therefore, enjoins that it be changed into the love of our neighbor. Calvin is exactly right. And his words are so relevant for us today. We live in a narcissistic culture where everything around you is telling you to love yourself. Everything. Legalism is self-love because it boasts in self-righteousness as the means of being accepted and loved by God. Antinomianism is self-love because it ignores God's moral law and pursues the desires of the flesh even at the expense of other people. Self-love is behind every single vice and corruption of our culture, and this is why there is so much division, so much conflict and selfishness and evil in our culture, and sadly to say, in our churches as well. 
God desires our self-love to be killed and to be transformed into love of God and neighbor, and the transformation happens only by the Spirit working through the Word as we hear through faith, hear by faith. Dutch Reformed commentator William Henderson said this, vice can only be conquered by virtue, which is the Spirit's gift, man's responsibility. Vice can only be conquered by virtue, which is the Spirit's gift, man's responsibility. Next, brothers and sisters, the alternative to to serving one another through love is hurting one another. That's the other choice. The churches in Galatia were in bad shape. It wasn't a good situation. Paul says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. How many of you would want to be part of that church where people are out to bite you and devour you and maybe finally consume you? I don't want to be a part of that church. That sounds intimidating, especially for a pastor, I guess. Imagine, in your mind, one of those nature shows like Marty Stauffer's Wild America. Do you remember Marty Stauffer? Anybody remember Marty Stauffer? Just my family? Yes, okay. A few people have this. Imagine a predator from that show biting into its prey and tearing its flesh and consuming its kill. That's, that's kind of Paul's imagery here. They were hurting one another through their words and through their unloving actions. By, by feasting on a contaminated gospel, they became like wild beasts attacking each other. When people turn to law-keeping as the means of justification, and when they use their Christian freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, it magnifies pride. It magnifies self-righteousness and conflict and comparing ourselves with others and suspicion and control and licentiousness and immorality and much, much more inside the church. It gets ugly fast, like a scene from Lord of the Flies. When we are not using our freedom to serve one another through love, chances are we are doing something to bite, devour, and consume one another. And I don't think it always has to be so graphic. It can sometimes be an undercurrent of viciousness, a low-grade bite and sharpness about the church, about your brothers and sisters in Christ, hidden behind this This facade, a facade of kindness and sociability and amiability and friendship, but it bites and it tears nonetheless. Here's what I'm trying to say. Christ set us free, not to indulge our flesh, but to serve one another through love. Brothers and sisters, how do we serve one another through love? How do we do it? Well, first... We do it by the Spirit of Christ that God supplies us by hearing with faith, through hearing with faith. We've got to hear with faith. We must walk by the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is love. He's the one that loves the right way. Well, His Spirit is in us, believers, and He is teaching us and empowering us how to love like Him, how to be just like Him. That's where true love begins. It it begins with knowing Christ and walking by his spirit. Second, Jesus is the perfect picture of how to love. His life of obedience to God's law is one big illustration of how to love. So, 
Study the life of Jesus. Study the life of Jesus. Watch how he treated people and look at the fullness of his person and work. Don't just pick your favorite parts, as, as some do. Look at all of how he, inter- watch how he interacted with the Pharisees. Watch how he interacted with the scribes. Watch how he interacted with adulterers. Watch all of it, the full part of it. You've you got to recognize that Jesus said hard things. He did extreme things that people didn't like, shocking things. So know Christ, study him in the fullness of his person and work. Third, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is a great list. So just start with this list. Start doing this list, and you'll be using your freedom how God wants you to use your freedom. It's pretty easy to understand. Just listen to it. Maybe take some notes of your favorite parts and do them. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, that's how we show how to love one another. Do that kind of stuff. Christ has set us free to live that out. This is not a pipe dream. This is how we should be living. It's not perfect. It looks ugly sometimes, but this is what the Spirit gives you strength to do. You're free to do that. God called us to freedom to live like that. So by grace and by the Spirit's work in us, let's live like that. Are you with me? Will you commit to doing this? You committed to it the moment you came to Christ. I'm committed. So are you. Let's do this. By the Spirit's work. Dr. William Hendrickson described love like this, and I'll end with this. I like how he put it. Such ingredients as deep affection. Self-sacrificing tenderness. Genuine sympathy, readiness to render assistance, yearning to promote the brothers and, in a wider sense, the neighbors' welfare, spontaneous giving, and forgiving. All these enter into it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ and the perfect example of how to live how to love, how to have deep affection, how to rebuke, how to challenge, how to strengthen, how to sharpen. Jesus is so precious to us. 
And we cannot walk away just hearing, well, be like Jesus. We must walk away understanding justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and the precious gift of the Holy Spirit who motivates and moves us to love like this. So without the gospel, this is just going to create moralists in us, God. We don't want that. We are your children. We have been set free entirely by Christ and his work, and therefore we are free to walk by the Spirit, to put to death what is earthly in us, and to love one another to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another. I pray that Jerusalem Church would be the most loving place on earth where big sins would be forgiven and worked through for your glory and for the greater good of the church. I pray, God, that we would find ways, creative ways, just to show love, small ways, medium ways, big ways, that we would show love to one another and that that would authenticate our testimony that God is glorious and we love you. God, help our lives to match what our mouths say. We can't just say we love you. We have to love our brothers and sisters. So God, help us to do that by your spirit, for your glory, and for our good, and for the growth of this church. Help us. Help us, God. We need you. And we have full expectation that you would help your children give to them what they need to do what you demand of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.